For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but lose their life? Words spoken thousands of years ago, but so, so acutely pertinent now. Pertinent in the sense that now, when the whole world has gained life, has gained enlightenment, has gained unbelievable wealth, has gained control over what threatens us, now we are losing our lives actually and spiritually. In Syria, in Gaza, in Israel, in West Africa, in the Ukraine, in the streets of Richmond and West Oakland and Hunters Point and Ferguson, Missouri, we are losing our lives. We are threatened by murderous violence and the pestilence which comes from unshared resources. In fact, we're not so different from the people who lived during the time when the book of Jeremiah was written. Jeremiah witnessed the rise and fall of King Josiah, the 13th king of Judah. Josiah was a religious reformer who put a stop to the worship of idols. But when he died, his reforms fell apart. Babylon swept in and swept the Jews into subjugation. Jeremiah attributed the fall of the temple to the faithlessness of the Jewish people, to their idolatry. But he left the ultimate responsibility with Yahweh, his God. The wrath of Yahweh, from Jeremiah's perspective, led to the destruction of the temple, or to the loss of life, as Jesus says in the Gospel. Jeremiah protests the fall of the temple in the strongest possible language. He says to God, Why is my pain unceasing, my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Truly you are to me like a deceitful brook. Can you not hear people saying today, Why is my pain unceasing? Strong words to say to your God. Jeremiah says, I ate your words. I was faithful. I was obedient. I did what I thought you wanted me to do, and you sold me into captivity. Privately, Jeremiah believes that the destruction of the temple and the Babylon, sub Babylon subjugation are the end of the world. But publicly, he urges continued faithfulness to Yahweh. He bears witness to the amazing creativity of God on one hand and to the horrible struggle of God's people on the other. In times of great catastrophe, of war, of epidemic illness, famine, and natural disaster, is it not natural to wonder why? We look for causes, we look for blame, and fix. Why? Because we think that we're in control. Is it not a matter of deep chagrin that in this world of great medical prowess, where strides are made every day against life-threatening disease, that there is an epidemic of life-ending virus in Africa? Is it not a matter of great anguish that after centuries of fighting, after centuries of peacemaking, and centuries of diplomatic endeavor, we are still killing each other in the most heinous ways possible? We are chagrined, we are anguished, we cry with Jeremiah. The power of death and destruction has taken deep hold over the world once again. The face of God, as manifest by human beings, has turned its attention away from those places which need it. The power of evil, the power of scarce resources, and of the need for dominion and control, 
has gained a vice-like grip. We do have some control. Resources flow through our decisions, after all, but we don't have all the control. Human beings are not the source of evil. Evil grows when people turn away from the places where there is need. The power of God to create newness flows through God's creatures, after all. And if they do not pay attention to the needy, that which Jesus called Satan takes hold. Jesus lived at such a t in such a time as we are living in, when the power of oppression was enormous. His message was incredibly simple. Love other people. Feed the hungry. Visit the impression, in prison. Close the naked. Heal the sick. Advocate for the oppressed. This was a political message. Jesus was, after all, the human word of God. The interpretation of God by God in the world. In unbelievably aggressive terms, Jesus laid out his mission. I have come not to bring peace but the sword. Father will turn against son and son against father. Just to love others, just to follow that commandment was a highly political subversive mission, which of course resulted in the death of Jesus. So when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, to Peter, he is talking about the fact that to carry out the mission of God for him on earth, he cannot cling to the old, to the comfortable, to the established, to the idea that human beings know what the world needs and can take care of it by themselves. Don't hold on to me, Jesus says. Don't hold on to the old way. Don't keep me here. Believe in the unknowable. Believe in the unreadable. Believe in the unimaginable power of the Father to change the world, to make something new out of the dead, to make something life-giving out of something corrupt. Taking up the cross, then, is by no means a personal spiritual venture. It is not something one does in private. Taking up the cross is not really about the individual, but about the witness in the community of God's fidelity and God's imagination. It is about getting involved in the world, as the prophets were involved. It is about speaking to the world about those godlike habits we try to cultivate, collaboration and generosity and advocacy and charity. Various authors have pointed out that the origins of our church came from the testimony of nomads and wanderers to the outrageous working of God against the norm. The birth of a son to Abraham and Sarah, for instance, when they were way beyond childbearing years. Or the amazing story of Joseph as a slave in Egypt interpreting Pharaoh's dreams. From the nomads and wanderers to the prophets who wrestled with God and wrestled again with imperial powers. From the prophets to Jesus who came with the sword. In that testimony, from nomads and wanderers to prophets to Jesus to us, in that vast experience of holding the sources of power in the world accountable by speaking the will of God to love one another, our story is written. We are called today to say what we believe, publicly and non-defensively. But more than that, we are called to believe what we say we believe. To trust that life is given to us, that we don't have to earn it, or keep working so frantically for it. 
that goodness and kindness will indeed follow us when we trust that we are loved. It is for us to accept life, to believe that it is good no matter how it looks and feels, for the time that we have it, and to fight for that belief for everybody else. This summer I have asked several people in this church to give me money to help some other people, particularly other people whose most basic needs were not met. I have asked people to believe that sharing their own resources will enhance the lives of others and thereby their own, and I have been answered with a wellspring of generosity. Not one person questioned me or my judgment. Not one person asked for thanks, and not one person asked for, to see my accounting. And while we haven't saved all the people we're trying to help yet, we have restored belief in life. If we could also use our resources to bear witness against the bigger social realities which rendered those needs to begin with, we would indeed be living our prophetic tradition. I ask us all now to think about how we can best become the prophets we are asked to be when we are baptized. We are, all of us together, living the scriptures. Let us come alive together in that holy tradition. This has been a sermon podcast from the Episcopal Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. We are a growing, welcoming community for those seeking to deepen their relationship with God and to journey in faith with God's people through the breaking of bread and in service to others in Christ's name. You can reach us by phone at 415-388-1907 or visit us online at OurSaviorMV.org. That's O-U-R-S-A-V-I-O-U-R-M-V for Mill Valley dot O-R-G. We wish you God's peace, and we hope to greet you in person very soon.